Um, and it's interesting to see, like you'll never hear somebody say to somebody that's in a really good space or in a really good mood, like, don't worry, you'll get over it. The idea of allowing a thought to be there for some people is just, it's such a radically, like, terrifying idea. Meditation is simple, yet difficult. So why make it more difficult for yourself by sitting in an uncomfortable position? Hello and welcome to Mindful Movement, the podcast. I'm your host, Amy Barnes, and I hope to facilitate informative and inspiring conversations relating to the endlessly complex and deeply relevant subject of wellness in the modern world. Our first guest is James Happer. James has been working with mindfulness for the past seven years and has taught yoga and meditation for 14 years. James, through his interest in the machinations of the mind, has earned an honours degree in psychological counselling and is certified in acceptance and commitment therapy, a counselling methodology that uses applied mindfulness in a therapeutic context. He works with individuals and runs trainings and workshops. He was kind enough to offer his time in discussing his ideas on mindfulness. Hello, James, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Amy. Thanks for having me on. Cool. So thank you so much for joining me. I invited you today because I thought that all of your experience with meditation and mindfulness in general uh, would be a really beautiful topic to discuss. And I thought we could just start by speaking about what meditation is and, you know, what would be a nice summary of what you think meditation is. Uh, Like an intro to meditation. I guess meditation is a practice kind of a concentrated practice with specific guidelines that relates to um, the mental processes, um, kind of observational mental processes or, or, or getting some kind of insight into mental processes by watching the mind. I mean, it's quite a broad mm. field, but yeah, like mindfulness practice um, in that sense is... Um, is really just about kind of being mindful of internal and external um, phenomena processes, yeah. Okay, so it's the observation of the self. What do you think drew you to the practice? I think I always had a romantic idea of meditation and mindfulness. So I, mm. I think as a, as a sort of child um, or a young, young person, I would pretend to meditate or sit in meditation sit in a meditation Mm -hmm. posture and kind of be still um, and those sorts of things and um, I guess it's so it started quite early but I only really got a handle on it I would say about about maybe seven or eight years ago like before then I had been doing Mm -hmm other kinds of practice I'd been trying to meditate I'd gone on some retreats and things like that but I hadn't I don't think you know I don't think I was actually meditating I was dabbling a little bit and um, obviously it's an ongoing process and, and it deepens over time but if I'm honest about it I think I was daydreaming with my eyes closed I was sitting quietly and kind of daydreaming about things um, mm, mm. and so I guess like I said so I got into it over time, gradually, as, as just an, a field of interest, I've always been interested in psychology and it was just an, uh, you know, a fascinating, fascinating idea 
um, that I that I read about over the years, and um, just uh, the interest grew and the practice grew um, slowly mm. over time. Mm. Okay, cool. Thank you so much for sharing that. I like that analogy of sort of daydreaming with your eyes closed, and I think that a lot of people who've attempted meditation can probably identify with that. Mm. What would you say a more accurate description of mindfulness would be? Well, I guess the the defining characteristic would be to know that you're daydreaming as opposed to being swept mm. up in the daydream. Mindfulness is not really in any particular sense trying to control any of these processes but to be cognizant of the fact that they seem to be taking place by themselves. They seem like, I mean, you know, the, 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 the movement of the mind you know, during a daydreaming process is very organic. It, it seems to kind of have a life of its own. But there's another part mm. of us that we can cultivate um, to observe that process of daydreaming from, the, like, you know, from a sense of realizing that we are daydreaming and as opposed to being totally caught up. You know, the, the, the analogy that I often draw is like the difference between, you know, being totally caught up in a movie as opposed to realizing that you're sitting in a cinema and watching a movie. It's nice to be mm. caught up in a movie every now and again. You know, it's really nice to kind of suspend reality and get swept away and to buy into whatever's happening. Um, but, mm. you know, with our thought processes that are going all the time, there's certain problematic things that could happen um, by being totally caught up in the thought processes and stuff. And, and meditation seeks to address some of those things. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very kind of... I, I should just add that I think it's a very it's a it's a very kind of intelligent um, system in the sense that it, it there's no sort of s sweeping mm. rule about what should or shouldn't happen. Everything gets contextualized and gets measured, so so that daydreaming isn't wrong. Um, it's just you know it's when mm -hmm. it becomes problematic or, or when you're totally identified with your thought processes, etc. But we can talk a bit more about that. So. In that sense, what, what, what is the argument for, for being mindful? You know, what is the purported benefit if I'm going to dedicate this time, which is a practice I'm currently trying to cultivate? What, what is my end goal? What am I aiming for? What is the promise of mindfulness? So um, just the kind of nuts and bolts of it, if you want to go, you know, down the, the kind of for this basic scientific route, it seems mm -hmm. that the analogy, or I mean, the old kind of saying that an idle mind makes for evil thoughts seems to be corroborated by science. So the, the process that takes place when we're in a relaxed state or a non-concentrated state, a certain part of the mind or network inside the brain gets activated, which they've identified, they call the default mode network. And... And that network mm -hmm. is generally associated with thoughts about the past and the future. It's, it's kind of the ruminating process. Also, you know, with daydreaming and, and those kinds of things. But it's, it seems as though when people spend more of their time than necessary in that state, it kind of leads to an unhappy, a generalized kind of unhappy state of mind. Um, whereas the opposite mm -hmm. has, has been shown to be true that a concentrated mind in and of itself is innately happier, more kind of content. Things like depression and anxiety seem to, to seem to have 
high levels or the people that have depression and anxiety seem to have higher functioning in their default mode network, for example. So there seems to be a correlation between the activity in that part of the brain that, that when we're not actually doing a task, that network kicks in. And if that network is overactive or continues to, to, to work overtime, it does tend to bring us into a state of general disease or, or just kind of worry, anxiety, etc. So that's, that's the kind of sort of argument just from the, the brain, the scientific point of view. I mean, when we get, we get into like different um, traditional statements, I guess, or traditional systems of, of meditation and mindfulness, um, there's, other, there's other deeper reasons, you know, that they would argue about um, for, for justifying why you would want to spend hours sitting quietly doing nothing. Yeah, like ideas around some karas and karma and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and and just the nature of, of mind, you know, just the nature of being able to allow the mind to settle, to kind of get to the basic state, to have it un, to have it to be unagitated. Because from an agitated state of mind, we often act irrationally or in a in a way that's potentially mm. potentially problematic. You know, I know that we were going to discuss. Oh, on our on our phone call before, I'd said how you mm. know looking at the the sort of reaction to the corona epidemic, you can see how an a, a reactive mind can sometimes make things can sometimes make things worse. It's almost like seeing that the general population of the world is is like a macroscopic representation of of most of the world's individual mindsets. Um, so acting from their place, in other words, of an un, of an undisciplined mind or a, um, an uncultivated mind or whatever the term you want to use is, tends to lead to kind of perpetual perpetuating or a generating of, of, of more and more karma, as they would call it, or those kinds of things. I'm, I don't know if that that's making much sense, but... Yeah, it is. I mean, I when you spoke about COVID-19... I think that mindfulness and meditation are probably, you know, by what you're talking about, really useful habits for people to be cultivating at the moment in particular, because I like the way Alain de Baton put it. He just said that we're going through a sort of planetary health scare. And he was using that analogy that when all individuals inevitably will have a health scare in their lives and all individual individuals will inevitably die. And the way that we respond to situations is obviously going to be indicative of our mental state and and the circumstances we find ourselves in now we can't really control our circumstances but we can control to a certain extent or we can cultivate a a mental state uh, which is i think the argument that you're making now um yeah you know in terms of you, you know you're, you're speaking about happiness and and just avoiding sort of anxiety and depression do you think that there are there are benefits to meditation and mindfulness around concentration or mental processes, like you're making ourselves more efficient in terms of the way that we think. I think I think that yes, I think you can say that. I I, I think it's sometimes that has to be kind of reframed to to a certain degree. My particular way of looking at meditation and mindfulness has always been, you know, it needs to be backed up pragmatically by science and things like that. I don't want to. Mm-hmm. make any particular claims about things that I can't justify with some sort of you know corroboration corroborative evidence 
so so a lot of the a lot of the the things that I talk about um, and the the things that I talk about on some of the courses that I run are are about some of the pr- sort of misconceptions that 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 arise around meditation. So you could say mm-hmm. that meditation does help with mental processes to a degree. Of course, the idea of being able to concentrate the mind to practice that is a skill. And we can definitely we can mm. definitely benefit from that over time, being able to place your attention on something or whatever you'd like to to work on without you know, and to rule out distractions or to partially kind of ignore distractions. Obviously that's that's useful from a productivity point of view. But I think mm-hmm. a lot of the time those those things are, are kind of motivators for for dabblers to get involved in meditation after the fact the benefits of the of, of meditation and mindfulness are so much so much broader and deeper than than that. Mm-hmm. But if we had to look at kind of, for example, how mental processes might get become more efficient and might get might get uh, sort of more freed up from the practice. For example, is the process of of acceptance or of non-resistance while we're practicing meditation. So one of the techniques while you're practicing, you're sitting quietly, the thoughts arise and we try not to engage in the thoughts we try and allow the thoughts to come we observe them from this observer mind we see them coming we see them going and then we start to also realize that there's a there's a subtle kind of push-pull taking place a mental kind of aversion or attraction to the thought process that are taking that are coming up you know this this is also obviously represented in the way that we respond to um, physical discomfort during meditation we we notice you know, we'd like to sort of move away from this feeling or get up and move or we feel agitated. But we just sit with the sensation, we observe it, and we notice after a while that there's a very kind of um, subtle push-pull taking place. And and through the process of kind of observation of non-interference, we, we allowing these, these feelings in the body, for example, of, of discomfort to kind of arise, to have a... a, a life a lifespan and to pass away without us responding to that so we we're programming ourselves or training ourselves to be as not as reactive to the thought processes etc and what that does in essence is it frees up mental energy because that that resistance or clinging or whatever else it is creates a kind of as um Shinzing young uh, one of the one of the teachers that i found very inspiring he he describes it as a kind of a viscosity you know, viscosity of thought. So sort of sort of making the thoughts more fluid and allowing them to flow through the mind unencumbered, there's a, there's a certain amount of energy that we recoup from that process because we're not saying, I like this, I dislike this, and whatever. So that's just one of the ways where the mental energy, you know, where mental energy can get um, amplified or, or freed up. So that's one of the benefits of meditation, um, you know, alongside the whole thing of, of concentration. But the two sort of, you can see how they, they, they kind of go hand in hand. Mm. It's actually made me think of something that I've I've thought of before. And it's a little bit of a, um, a roadblocker that I come up against when I have those experiences with meditation and its applicability in my normal day-to-day thinking is the sense and I don't know whether I'm just misinterpreting it because I you know it would be disingenuous of me to say that I'm a serious uh, meditator or that I ever really have been okay. um, I have tried 
uh, a Vipassana in the past and I attempt meditations and have done alongside yoga practice and things like that, but okay, I'm not sure like whether I could. Then, I guess. <laughs> Um, but what I've always found quite difficult to discern is at what point th there's this idea, and, and like I say, I'm not sure whether I'm misinterpreting this premise, that one should not be reactive at all. And what at what point does the gravity of certain emotion, do you just allow yourself to be swept away in? And, you know, do, are we supposed to sort of be tempering ourselves? And, and I, I wondered whether you could maybe pass that out a little bit for me. Um, I think it's a valid, it's a, it's a really important question um, to, for people to, to get clear on um, before they begin, because it, it, it does lead, I think, to, to one of those kind of common misinterpretations or, or, or preconceptions, misconceptions, is that, that we're, we're, we're kind of making ourselves into, like you say, like a kind of a flatline being, you know, somebody mm. that, and, you know, if that was the case, a lot of the sort of serious practitioners and, and speakers around the world would they would speak in monotone and wouldn't laugh or anything else like that. Really, I think what it's about is noticing those emotional states even more wholly. But the act of experiencing them mindfully or consciously changes them to a degree. So okay. instead of getting totally swept up in it and, and losing yourself in it or having a particular kind of preferential response to it, we can actually sort of feel it for what it is um, in, a much, in a much cleaner, direct way. So, so this, mm. this idea of acceptance is, is tricky. You know, always, you know, with language... We always, we're always going to be wrestling with certain terms and trying to find terms to clear, like most clearly establish what, you know, what these ancient sort of older languages had specific words for. We try, we try to, like you say, to kind of pass it now into, into English language. So this idea of acceptance for a lot of people is problematic, you know. Um, some people have said, you know, acceptance is, is contrary to, to protest, um, to social protest and those kinds of things. There are things we shouldn't accept, etc. We should get angry about things. Mm -hmm. And for sure, like I think that you, I think that emotional states, so the, the, the idea that emotional states shouldn't exist is problematic. We've used them for many thousands of years to survive. They've all provided certain, certain um, benefits. Um, but we've, we can also see how they become sort of, they can become pathological. Uh, you know, in the case of anxiety and uh, mm. you know, fear and those sorts of things. So, so in essence, what we're trying to do is we're trying to experience the sensation or the feelings that are coming up for us in a in a non-reactive way, so that so that we can allow those feelings to take place and we can experience them fully. Because what's what's usually happening is people have got preferential, knee-jerk responses to to um, certain emotional states. I mean, we are trying to create a way in which we can experience the full range of emotional states without any particular kind of um, subjective judgment or value judgment placed on any, any one of them. So generally in our society, it's okay for men to be angry, but not for, for men not to cry. Um, and for women, it's yeah. totally cool for them to cry, but for them to be angry is very like, you know, that's totally non-feminine. So those kinds of social mm. 
stigmas that we place on our emotions definitely have like you know give us a particular response to the emotional states and it's interesting to see Mm. like you'll never hear somebody say to somebody that's in a really good space or in a really good mood like don't worry you'll get over it or um (laughs) um, just just you know just just take some time it'll pass you know just just wait for your happiness (laughs) to pass um and you know other emotions will come up just you know don't freak out about being so happy um so there's definitely you know there's definitely this this push pull again you know i'm happy i want to maintain the state forever um i'm sad i I want this feeling to go away without being too long-winded really what we're trying to do is we're trying to develop a greater capacity for us to experience these emotions because we don't actually experience these emotions they cause a kind of cascade that will often make us want to get away from them or react in, in ways that are that are usually kind of explosive. Like if I suppress my anger for, for a long time and then eventually I can't hold it anymore, that's when I have these blowouts. But if I can say to somebody, you know, very mindfully, like I'm angry right now. I feel angry. I can feel I've got this, this heat behind my eyes and my palms are sweating and I feel, I feel like there's a lot of injustice in what just happened here. Not only will I be able to kind of experience my by emotions, but I'll be able to develop the capacity to hold space, not only for myself, but inevitably for other people that are also having difficult emotional states. Mm. I, I, I really appreciate that. I think the, the idea of creating a bit of space and time between the emotion and the subsequent, you know, knee-jerk reaction as you so aptly put it, just gives you that time to sort of filter that emotion through some of your more ethical, moral, you know, things that you believe in um, before you perhaps, you know, do something that you might later regret, which I certainly do. So that's that's an appealing, <laughs> that's a, 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 an appealing benefit. Um, mm. Do you think that there are any contraindications to to mindfulness or anything that some people should keep in mind or is it more or less a harmless activity no i think there are definitely contraindications i think i think it was um garfield who said that you know the truth will set you free but first it will make you very upset the first thing (laughs) that meditation and mindfulness will do is it'll start to kind of reveal things to you that that you might not have wanted to kind of deal with in the first place I can't remember who it was. I think it was either Freud or Jung, one of those guys, um, who said that, and I'm, I'm definitely paraphrasing here, it was something about mm-hmm. um, most psychological problems are a substitute for legitimate suffering. Hmm. So when we try to kind of, when we, we de- develop mechanisms and ways of kind of not dealing with our stuff, and then we, we come to mindfulness and meditation and we, and we start to practice these things, a lot of stuff can come up. So people that are dealing with things like you know, post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. can, can have a really rough ride you know, because the practice is, is designed to help you kind of turn towards rather than turn away from mm. the things that are going mm. on for you. People with, um, mm. you know, with other kind of clinical disorders often have gotten to that place because the, the pain and the discomfort of their d- 
depression, anxiety, or whatever it was, was too difficult to bear in, in, in their conscious mind, in their waking mind. So they have adopted mechanisms to, to try to like, you know, ease the burden of that discomfort, of that suffering. So there are some contraindications for sure, um, in the sense that you will, to some degree initially, amplify um, some of these psychological disorders. And I don't think, you know, I think if you're, if you're receiving treatment or whatever it is for depression and anxiety, and you decide that you want to check out mindfulness and meditation, I would continue to do whatever treatment you're receiving and do mindfulness in parallel. In fact, I think, mm. I think you know, mindfulness should be practiced in parallel to like almost everything that you do. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use it as a, as a kind of a substitute, but rather as a, um, a kind of augmentation of everything that you're already doing in your life. I mean, even if, you know, mm. um, if there's something that's going on in your life that's potentially problematic, you have an addiction or something else like that, I wouldn't suggest trying to go cold turkey and just go do mindfulness. In some sense, doing mindfulness with that addiction has a way of starting to transform the addiction to something that that doesn't need to be resisted or doesn't need to be kind of given that that power that sometimes mm. comes from from uh, resisting uh, it. What you know, if the the when it, um, it was, I think it was Anthony de Mello who said um, the best way to create a relationship with something is to renounce it. Hmm. So, you know, um, there are contraindications and it should be, you know, for people that, that have psychological disorders or, or have been diagnosed with such or, or have gone through a really difficult um, thing with a post-traumatic stress, etc. definitely draw on your support networks, continue with the same treatment that you're receiving. I wouldn't... I know people. I know people that went on, uh, you know, vipassana trainings, in in the hope mm -hmm. that they could deal with their anxiety, and they had terrible anxiety attacks, panic attacks during that process. Um, mm. You know, so so there are mm. there are ways that mindfulness can get incorporated into traditional psychotherapy or um, done in that way. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's interesting because I think that a lot of people think of mindfulness and probably do think of something quite harmless. I I certainly have in the past. And so I do think it's nice to just know going into it that there might be an amplification in some respects and not an analgesic emotional you know, effect, mm, but mm. actually one that might make, like you say, turn towards it. Um, that is quite a nice opportunity for us to discuss um, ACT. When I was looking you up and, and, and reading on your website, I mean, I, you're a friend of mine, but I don't actually, we've never really discussed ACT. What is ACT and, and how does it use mindfulness? Well, ACT is a form of psychotherapy. It's like uh, initially it came from the uh, cognitive behavioral sort of school of thought or behavioral school of thought. And it's, it's part of what they call the third wave of cognitive behavioral therapy. And really what it was, it's, uh, it was um, established in the 1980s, I think it was, by Stephen Hayes and, and colleagues. And what they did is they basically applied, they've, they've taken a lot of the techniques of meditation and mindfulness and they've, put it, they've applied it to the therapeutic context. So 
it in some ways is very kind of diametrically opposed to a lot of the other kinds of psychotherapy that you that you encounter in the sense okay. that um, in the sense that a lot of the time they don't they you know there's no um, kind of agenda or, or prescriptive way of being in the sense of being something different or trying to do something different or be anything other than you are there's the mm. there's the kind of application of mindfulness to the problem under the you know with the understanding that by becoming aware of a thing or by applying attention to a thing it changes that thing by itself mm. so so there isn't a an ulterior sort of process that gets set up in opposition to whatever it is that you're experiencing but rather a development of the of the capacity to experience that thing and then allowing it to change by itself which which is which is quite a different approach to a lot of um, some of the other other ways of, of kind of talking about stuff I mean talk therapy and those sorts of things have, have, have you know they've proven to be useful of course and and working through childhood memories and and uh, discussing interactions in your families yeah. and all those kinds of things obviously that kind of therapy definitely has its place and its benefit but act almost kind of says you know it, it acknowledges the understanding that there's going to be discomfort in this life and mm. in your way of being mm. and mm. rather than trying to find a way to eliminate discomfort it looks at how do we learn to live with it in a way that we can still live according to our values how can we develop mm. the capacity to tolerate discomfort to tolerate the discomfort to a point where we can continue to live our lives so some people you know have have um, psychological disorders that are unresponsive to medication and all sorts of other things whatever um, other other forms of treatment and um, acceptance and commitment therapy has been very beneficial in that sense in the sense that it creates or it helps people to to gain the insight that they are different from their thought processes for a start okay so to realize that i mm. am thinking and i have a choice of whether i want to engage in that thought or not you know where is that thought going to lead me do i want to entertain it or not so that that little key in and of itself can shift so much for people and they've, they've shown results in, you know, even in severe cases of, with people with schizophrenia to mm. just get that, to just get that subtle shift in perspective that I am something that is thinking those thoughts. So if those thoughts arise and pass away and I can see that process happening, surely there is something else to me than the thought process. And that gives people an opportunity to change their relationship towards whatever it is that's causing them, them discomfort or whatever. Mm. But that, I mean, that's one sort of aspect of the, of the acceptance and commitment therapy uh, process, yeah. It's a fascinating thing. It's very, very simple. It's, very, um, the, it's a you know, very elegant solution. And obviously it's not applicable to everything, but developing that capacity to be able to to sit with the discomfort gives you the gives you the chance then to say, okay, I am depressed, and I'm going for a walk. Mm. Like, what do I need? If you have that a little bit of space between you and your thoughts, you can, you can almost like 
compromise with them perhaps a little bit more. Or you can just allow them to be negotiate there. Negotiate with them. Yeah. Yeah, the idea of allowing a thought to be there for some people is just it's such a radically like terrifying idea to start with, <laughs> right? When mm. you when you've been dealing with yeah. when you've been dealing with these things and wrestling with these things for many many years. And um, you know, and I also think it's a pop psychology consequence. You know, it's like, you know, if I'm if I'm not incessantly positive, right. then I'm attracting bad juju, basically. If I'm not doing anything about this, then how's it going to change? It's like, well, look, you know, look yes. at look at it. Just just carry on staring at it, and you'll see that it has the innate sort of um, quality of everything else in existence. In the, in the, that it is constantly changing, and it is more than likely impermanent so so it turns out that the resistance towards that thing is what's actually keeping it going but it's it's it takes a little bit of a leap of faith to to do that initially yeah. you know and there's um you know there's a process in the in the act uh, model where where we you know we explore like what other strategies have you tried you know, you know, mm. have, have any of those worked? They work in the sh- <laughs> and they work in the short term, perhaps. So, mm. so when you you know when you run out of those strategies, what have you got to lose by trying the opposite? Of just allowing it to be there, of turning towards it, of of kind of making peace with with these things, and then somehow, for some inexplicable reason that we don't understand, although we see this taking place awareness seems to allow these things to dissipate Hmm. because it is non it's 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 this idea of non-judgment you know that's what you know you'll often hear that term bandied around you know i'm sitting i'm sitting with attention i mean that's uh, john kabat-zinn often you know well his his statement is like um mindfulness is paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally and when people hear non-judgment just from my experience um you know doing doing some of these trainings it seems to be this this word that they think is to to do with like i don't know something kind of more esoteric or some kind of strange esoteric concept but it's really just Mm -hmm. that it's that process of just noticing that is a thought that i like that is a thought that i don't like and just in that process of noticing that you like and don't like it, there's that you've eliminated that 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 um, unconscious movement towards or aversion from the thought, and that's really what 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 is meant by non-judgment. Mm-hmm. So you do these you do these trainings, meditations, uh, meditation for normal people, and yeah, <laughs> obviously the premise of this is to <laughs> the premise of this is to try to. I imagine demystify mindfulness for people. What would you say? Well, I'd like you to give us three takeaway tips. But before we get there, what would you say the biggest objections to meditation or roadblocks to meditation, developing the practice are and have that you have found with people? Um, three roadblocks. Or any roadblocks, um, but sure, I, I okay. Mind I mean, a couple of tips. A couple of tips. Okay. Well, the first one is um, I can't do it because my mind won't be quiet. I tried to sit, and okay. my, my my head is full of thoughts. I just can't make my mind go quiet. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so... I can identify. Right. So the first roadblock is meditation is not about making your mind go quiet. Okay. Um, so it's not a problem with your mind. It's a problem with your um, preconception of what you think meditation is. The, when people first attempt to, to, to meditate and notice the busyness of their mind, sometimes that's called the first insight. Because actually, that's happening anyway. It, it's just the, mm-hmm. you've, you've just become aware of it for the first time. Yes. So don't, you know, don't be disheartened by the busyness of your mind. That is something yeah. that everybody has. And you, for the first time now, have become aware of something that's taking place anyway. So, you know, I don't want to freak anybody out. Like, you don't have to do meditation. <laughs> you can just go back to having a busy mind and then you can, like, but don't, like, get anxious or, like, you know, have an anxiety attack while you're noticing how busy your mind is. Just, yes. just realize that, that that is happening to everybody anyway, even people that are practicing meditation. And in time, you know, the, the, the promise is that it settles by itself. Okay, the, the mm. metaphor that they use is the sand in the water. There's like sand in a, in a bottle of water. And the more we try and move the bottle around to try and get the sand to settle, it stirs it up. Mm. And if we just place the bottle down and we don't fiddle with it, the sand settles by itself. So, so the road, yeah. So I'd say that's the first roadblock is people making the assumption that they're supposed to be able to quieten their mind, and if they can't do that, they've failed. You know, welcome to the club. Um, <laughs> I think the other, you know, some of the other things um, for me can be very simple and kind of pragmatic yes um you know sitting comfortably yeah um i can't do it you know my back hurts all of this other kind of stuff it's like then you you say well how are you sitting and they get into like a full lotus position (laughs) and it's like well why are you doing that no well this is how you're supposed to meditate yes it's like no one said anything about that (laughs) You know, so people are looking in these books and things and saying, you know, I have to sit in this very uncomfortable position for long periods of time. It's like meditation is simple yet difficult. Mm. So why make it more difficult for yourself by sitting in an uncomfortable position? This is one of the one of the first things that I train people to do is just Mm. like find a comfortable seat. And you hear that on these recordings. People don't listen. It's like, make sure you're sitting comfortably. It's like, okay, cool. I'm sitting comfortably. You know, I'm sitting on the floor. I have no support. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not allowed to rest my, my lower back against a, a pillow or anything else because, because that's not, uh, you know, that's not real meditation. Mm-hmm. So it's pragmatic things like that, you know. Okay. Making sure you're comfortable in the sense like you, you're warm enough or, you know, you've got a little blanket on or something else like that. People say, like, why do we sit? Um, it's the it's the perfect kind of balance between being uh, too relaxed, which would be lying down, and too alert or rigid, which would be standing up. Yeah. So so you know, making sure you can sit cross legged, you can sit kneeling position, do anything you want, but just make okay. sure you can sit comfortably. So so we have permission to 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 be comfortable, and sitting is recommended, even if that's in a really comfortable chair or with back support. 
Yeah, with nice. within reason, you know. If yeah. you're the kind of person that carries on, you know, that needs to like flog yourself in order to feel like you've had a, you know, a productive day, then yeah, sure, sit in a comfortable chair. If you're the kind of person that tends to slouch a lot and needs any excuse at all to kind of flop into a couch, mm-hmm. then maybe you should sit on the ground on like a pillow. Okay. So, so like, like get, get create to know a bit yourself. of disease. Like there should be a little bit of a little bit of some edge that you've discipline. discovered. Okay, discipline. I like that. It is a discipline. It's okay. not entertainment. That's another thing that I think that you know. Anyway, um, okay. That, that's the discussion for another day, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So it's like those kinds of things. Really, the courses that are run most of the time deal with the, the misconceptions. Like once those are out of the way, the practice becomes relatively simple and then people can get busy practicing yeah but up to that point there's a lot of issues that they have um that are based on those kinds of things that um i need to silence the mind um i, sh- I should be at peace mm-hmm. i shouldn't be thinking um you know these inappropriate thoughts you know mm. like if i'm you know if i'm in meditation and i have a thought about sex or you know about money or you know then i've failed mm. Like what, what? 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 What's the difference between that thought? It's like, or or um, how about um, I have to be in a good space to meditate? Why? Why is your why is a happy state any any better time to meditate than than being depressed? Mm. You know these kinds of little interesting ideas that creep in from I don't know where are some of the questions that people have asked me um, on some of these trainings, and I. Um, so those are some of the roadblocks. Um, I think people overthink things and, and just kind of, you know, assume it's like you know. I'm sure you've heard people say, "I can't go to yoga because I'm not flexible yeah, enough." Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's why you go to yoga. Yes. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it's like I can't I can't meditate because my mind's really busy. It's like, yeah, that's why <laughs> you meditate. Perfect. Anyway. Okay, fabulous. So I wanted to draw people's attention to your 21-day meditation challenge. Um, I signed up for it, and I found it very helpful. Um, how do people go about doing that? They can um, they can sign up through my website. Cool. Um, so it's jameshappercoaching.co.za. Fab. And uh, there, there's a link there to the 21-day meditation challenge. And, I'd, and I'm actually currently working on an online version of the meditation for normal people as well. So when that comes out, then, then if, you have, if people have signed up for the mailing list, they'll also get a notification of that. Perfect. The, yeah, the, so the 21-day challenge is, is totally free. And you're, you're basically starting off with five minutes a day for the first week, moving on to 10 minutes, and then moving on to 15 minutes. So it's a gradual nice. process that over three weeks, you get to like a 15-minute practice. Beautiful. Lovely. Well, thank you so much, James. I feel like this was an amazing, insightful, interesting conversation. Thank you for for being here and for contributing your thoughts. I always find you to be really interesting to listen to. So thank you so much for that and for sharing with whoever cares to listen. And yeah, I look forward to us having more of these conversations in the future. Cool. Thanks, Amy. Thanks very very much for thinking of me and for having me on the show. And I hope I have clarified things more than I've muddied the water, so to speak. Um, I think you have. Thank you. Cool. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to Mindful Movement, the podcast. 
To find out more about James, his meditation training and consulting practice, please visit jameshappercoaching.co.za. That's jameshappercoaching.co.za. Happer is spelt H-A-P-P-E. If you enjoyed this content, there are various ways you can support it. You can like, share, or comment on it on social media, and you can subscribe to this podcast channel. Until next time, keep well.